this Wednesday night? You're fabulous. Simply fabulous. If you turn your Bibles tonight, Hebrews chapter 7. I'm going to pick up verses 11 through 19. As I shared with you, I will continue to share with you until we get to the end of the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers primarily to convince them that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. It's the reason for the letter. It is immensely important to the church because it gives us the most full doctrinal picture of who Jesus is. It also gives us the greatest picture of the difference between Jesus and every other world religion, between any other thing and Jesus. And so as we get to these ten verses tonight, and we really ponder them, you're going to see the superiority of Jesus. This particular passage of Scripture, which will go on next week to really draw this chapter to a close in drawing near to God, this piece that we now find ourselves in gives us this incredible difference between Jesus and Judaism, between the law and grace, between the Old Testament and all that it contained with regard to what God had previously shown the Jewish people and who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And so it is a wonderful picture for us because the temptation, very often it is amazing to see the resurgence of once dead religious activity. Uh, there are Christians that turn to Judaism. There are Christians that turn to Kabbalism, which is a type of Judaism. There are Christians that turn into, in essence, Judaizers. There are Christians who uh, turn to Seventh-day Adventism, which is basically Judaism combined with Christianity. There, there are Christians who somehow feel that you can add to uh, and, and even make better, if you will, your Christianity by adding back in uh, the Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament way of life, the Old Testament qualifications, as we saw last week, the Old Testament priesthood, and the cases made in these verses that nothing is superior to Jesus. No one, and he is in immeasurable way, different than anyone who's ever been on this planet. And so I pray the Lord would speak to us. Uh, he certainly is our high priest, and we're going to see some of these differences tonight. So would you pray with me? Father God, as we turn our attention now to your word, and we recognize that there is a temptation that we have as human beings to simply be religious, and the more religious we are, it seems like the more we think we're doing your will. And so, God, I pray that if there's someone here tonight that is bound up in religion, that they'd be set free to grace. And so, Lord, uh, impart your word to us, instruct us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11 here in Hebrews chapter 7, And therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, and you'll see there in parentheses if you have a new King James for under it, the people received the law. So if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical priesthood for a period of time was a very important entity on this earth. And in fact, 
uh, they for a while bore the closest thing to being connected to God that existed on the planet. In other words, Judaism in, in all of its facets was at one point in time as close as you could get. You couldn't get any closer than being a Jew. And to a certain extent, at that time, it was the most correct of all of the religious systems that existed on the earth. And so there was a time that the Levitical priesthood was very important. They bore the law of God. And they brought the practices of the worship of God insofar as mankind had been instructed for what mankind knew there was a period of time when it was as good as it got. And it was prior to the coming, of course, of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Messiah of glory. But if perfection through Levitical priesthood, if that was possible, if it was doable, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? So here's where this mysterious character that we saw last time comes into play. If it were possible to be saved, if the Old Testament priesthood, the law, and everything you read, if you ever need to go to sleep and you are having trouble, read the book of Leviticus. Okay, Read Deuteronomy. You know, Just go through and just agonize over the book of Numbers. And, and read all of the detail that was put into establishing the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices and the temple ceremonies and everything that they did. To swallow a gnat was to take in blood. That was the reason that Jesus used that as an analogy. And if you were to drink or eat anything that had blood in it, you were unclean. That's why the Pharisees strained over a gnat. They would take and strain their wine twice through linen gauze to make sure that they didn't ever swallow a gnat because that's how precise the law was. It was immeasurably more difficult than grace. And yet, it was completely insufficient. It could never bring anyone into a right relationship with God so that they could completely draw near to Him. Even the high priest was not endued, if you will, with the ability to enter into the Holy of Holies whenever he wanted. He was not allowed to go in but one day of the year on the day of Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement. So even the high priest, if you want to look at it, the Levitical priest who was assigned through all of this rigmarole and, and appointed under the office of priesthood, even he wasn't able to get near to God whenever he wanted to. So the best you could do is kind of sort of get there. So now we come, what need would there be for another priest that should rise according to the order of Melchizedek? This one whom would not have any lineage, this one who would come on the scene, this one who would then disappear, this one who would be eternal, why would there be any need if the Levitical priesthood could do the whole job of getting you near to God? And the answer is, there wouldn't have been any need. But the truth of the matter is, the Levitical priesthood and Judaism itself could never reconcile man fully to God. It didn't happen. Got him close. 
Got them as close as mankind could get, but it didn't get them all the way. And not be called, in other words, he would go on to give it another qualifier, not be called according to the order of Aaron. So this order of Melchizedek, not of the order of Aaron, and not of the Levites. So to a Jew hearing all of this, you mean we were never all the way there? You mean there was actually a need for this guy? It's beginning to put questions in their mind for the priesthood being changed. And I want you to notice that that's the present indicative in the Greek language. In other words, it got changed. It was changed. The priesthood was, in fact, changed. Of necessity, there's also a change of the law. You see, at one point in time, the law was it. The law was the way. The law is no longer the way. It's just a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. It was changed. Still has a place, but it was changed, indelibly changed. And so we're no longer under the law, but under grace. So the law is still there. God's character didn't change, but the law's position sure changed because it's not being administered in that finite sense of I have to keep every bit of the law in order to be right with God. There's a change also in the law. There's a change in the priesthood. For he of whom these things were spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. And these things are so important to understand the detail with which these words are being spoken. So this new priest, who's going to be of the order of Melchizedek, who's going to have no mother, no father, no genealogy, not traceable, he's going to come on the scene and disappear, and he's going to be an eternal priest forever. Remember that part? He's going to exist forever. He's coming from another tribe. Imagine it. He's not going to be a Levite. He's not going to be after the order of Aaron. He's going to come from another tribe. Well, that can't happen because Moses told us so. You see, people still cling to their Moseses. They still cling to the law. They still cling to the Levitical order. They still cling to religion. They still hang on to all kinds of things. That's why Jesus is necessary. Is because none of those things could get you all the way there. For he of whom these things were spoken of belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. It was of that time that if someone of a different tribe officiated at the altar, they died. You couldn't do it. It was over. Your life was ended. If you didn't die instantaneously from opening the veil that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies, then the high priests themselves were ordered to kill you for profaning the holy place. You couldn't do it. For it's evident that our Lord arose from Judah. Do you remember some time ago when I expressed to you that the Old Testament actually declared this truth long before it ever happened? It's found there back in Genesis chapter 49 and in verse 10. And now that prophecy that was recorded by Moses comes into full view. For it says there, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. So the lawgiver gets replaced by the one who is the bringer of peace. And, of course, we know that that's Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so in the Old Testament, they were told that the scepter would not pass. Now comes human history. In AD 6, the Romans removed the right of capital punishment from the Jewish people. 
They could no longer take the life of anyone that was made, in essence, a criminal under Jewish law. It had to be turned back over to the Romans. That is why when Jesus came and appeared before Pilate and pled his case, and the Jews were saying, well, why don't you put him to death? They wanted the death penalty. And they said, well, we find no guilt in this man. They couldn't put him to death themselves because the scepter had been removed until the lawgiver comes, who will be called Shiloh. Until the one who would be the ultimate high priest would come, who would bring and be Shiloh himself. What they didn't know was, was that young man who was born in, in Bethlehem, who grew up in Nazareth, who was now standing before them, was in fact the Shiloh who was to come. And he would come from Judah, not Levi. Fulfilled the prophecy. Of which the tribe of Moses, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. So he's stating, so Jesus, who was from the tribe of Judah, is greater than the Levitical priesthood because he is the great high priest. And he's after the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Levi. So as the Jews begin to compile all this information, they think about it. The case that's being presented is whatever Jesus brought, it's greater than everything contained in all of the Levitical order and the law and the sacrifices and the feast days and the Day of Atonement itself. And they're going, boy, hey. What are we going to do? You know, we're, we're like in trouble here. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of, notice this, an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. In other words, the old way didn't work. It never finished the deal and got everybody close. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, there is a bringing of a better hope, notice this, through which we, 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 you and I, and everybody who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, will draw near to God. Do you realize that the sum and total of God's plan for this entire earth is that we draw near to God? That's really what He wants. That's why we worship. That is to whom we pray. It's whom we serve. It's what this book, the Bible, is about. It's to draw mankind near to God. Under Judaism... You could not draw all the way to God. You could get kind of close at times. You could have good days. But you as an individual could never draw near to God. You had to trust in the high priest of going on the Day of Atonement to even get you as far as you could go. 
in relation to drawing near to God. There was a veil there. It separated your humanness and sin and mine from the holy God. And God wanted us always to be able to draw right up near to Him. But you couldn't do it through Moses. You couldn't do it through the Levitical order, through Aaron. It could only happen through the coming king, the Messiah, who would be the one of the order of Melchizedek, not of Levi, but of Judah. And so this picture begins to unfold. That's God's plan. And it's it's according to the power. Notice what's mentioned here, that the indestructible or endless life. An endless life is another way of saying eternal life. A life without end is what it actually says in the Greek language. A life without end is an eternal life. It's the power of eternal life. None of the Levitical priests ever had eternal life. They, they, if they're in heaven right now, it's because they believed all the way to the end of their days by faith in the coming Messiah. That's why they would be in heaven. If they did not hold that, then they perished. And they're still awaiting judgment. Because there's never been a way to draw all the way near to God without Jesus. That's why Jesus himself said, and remember it was to a Jewish audience in John chapter 14 verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father but by me. He said that to Jews. They didn't get there through Levi. They didn't get there through the the order of Aaron. They didn't get there because they were the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They didn't get there because they were the world's oldest monotheistic religion. They didn't get there because inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the very tablets upon which God by His own hand inscribed the Ten Commandments. They didn't get there from the rod of Aaron. They didn't get there because of the pot of manna that was in there. They didn't get there because of the tabernacle or the temple. They couldn't get there because of those things. There was always only one way, and that one way was always Jesus. Many people turn to religion. And in essence, I want to draw your attention to this tonight. If Judaism couldn't seal the deal, what chance do you think any other world religion has of getting you all the way there? And the answer is zero. Because Judaism was instituted by God for his chosen people. And it was insufficient. Because it was a work of the flesh. It was always a work of the flesh. Did it have components of God's hand in it? Was it established by him? Yes. But it relied on man. Your relationship with Christ Jesus relies on God's power. God raised his only son from the dead. Jesus Christ gave his life a ransom for you. You receive Christ by grace and through faith, and that is not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Judaism was always a work of man, even as fine a work of man as it was. It was always a work of man. It was, in essence, a works-based religion. No one's ever been saved by works. No By the works of the flesh, Scripture declares, is no one justified. And so it paints this incredible picture of the difference. And this is why, you ever wondered why Jesus is such an affront to the world? 
You ever wonder why you can talk about God all day long with people, and you will rarely have anybody get say much about it. You say, hey man, uh, do you believe in God? And they'll either say yes or no. And if they say yes, they'll have some type of conversation. If they say no, they normally respect you for having some type of belief in God. That's relatively normal. But you mention Jesus' name, and all hell breaks loose. Because he's the narrow way. He's the way that leads unto life. He's the one that's after the order of Melchizedek, the one that would do away with the law, the one that would make that obsolete, the one that would replace it with grace, the one that would take it from religion to relationship. You see, Judaism could not get you able to draw near to God. It could only get you to that place to where, yeah, you wake up in the morning and I'm going to go do some religious deeds. But as far as getting you into God's throne room, forget it. Didn't happen. Got you as close as you could get, but close don't count when you're talking about between heaven and hell. Amen? It doesn't count. If you miss heaven by this much, you've missed. The option, option B is hell. Option B is destruction. It's damnation. Option A is the one that you want. Judaism couldn't get you there. Could only get you close. It, in essence, was a foreshadowing of things to come. It left enough holes in this world and does to this day to make people wonder, what's this all about? And that's why Paul would write to the church at Galatia that the law was a tutor, a schoolmaster unto Christ. It was just there to say, no, doesn't quite make it. You ever had one of those teachers that's a pretty good teacher but can't quite communicate the ideas necessary so you can get the subject matter? You know, it's like differential equations, calculus, things like that. Most people, you need a really good teacher that can communicate those things in a way that you can grasp the whole concept to get it. That's rather like Judaism. Judaism was a really good math teacher, but couldn't teach calculus. Couldn't do the final thing, the most difficult thing. That's why Paul would write to the church at Ephesus in in Ephesians chapter 3 there in verse 17. It says, And so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints. To comprehend with all the saints. You see, the saints finally got it when Jesus came. They didn't get it all the way when he was not here yet, but once Jesus came on the scene, once Jesus died for their sins, they, oh, that's what we were waiting for. We were waiting for the Messiah. With all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, they didn't have all the fullness of God yet. They had a lot of God, but they didn't have all of it. And family of God, to get into heaven, you've got to have all of it. You can't have almost enough. That's called failure. That's called you perish. You've got to have it all. And so Christianity, in essence, is the fullness of God. If you, if you want to describe what Christianity is, it is the fullness of God in you. It's God's work being carried out in your life in such a way that ultimately you're going to make it to heaven. 
Without Christ, you can't have the fullness of God. Without the one who's after the order of Melchizedek, you can't have the fullness of God. You see, what the Jews experienced was just kind of a shadow. And so I've shared with you, the temple was such a beautiful picture of what God wanted to do, but did not occur under Old Testament Judaism. He wanted them to have the bread of life. He wanted them to have direct access through their prayer life on the altar of incense. He wanted them to be a light unto the world. You see, these things were in the holy place. When you went into the temple, the first area you came to was the holy place. But beyond that was the holy of holies. And in that was the presence of God. Well, they could get a little bit of the bread of life. They could offer up prayers. They could see a little bit of light. But they couldn't make it all the way into the mercy seat. They couldn't get the full deal yet. Only the new covenant could do that. Only the Messiah could do that. And so it left them in need. It's interesting here that because the veil existed, and I I love the, the picture that the veil gives us as the body of Christ. Because when Jesus died and the veil was rent from the top to the bottom, that's what Scripture declares, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom, not the bottom to the top, top to the bottom. In other words, God to man. When it was ripped and torn open, the high priest thought it was a catastrophe. They were freaking out. They're standing in the holy place, shielding their eyes, going, no, we don't want to look in there. If we do, we might die. And God's saying, no, I tore it open because I want to be with you and I've made a way in Jesus Christ, my Son. When He said it was finished, it's really finished. You now have open access to God the Father through Jesus the Son. You see, they had never known that. They had always been afraid of that veil. That veil was actually a protection. That, that veil represented to them, well, at least over here I won't die. But now the veil being opened meant they could really live. You see, they were content to be part dead. You ever wonder why the book of Ephesians declared, for we were once dead in our trespasses and sins? but we have been made alive in Him. It's because when the veil was torn, we went from being dead, literally, eternally, to being alive, literally, eternally. All through Jesus Christ. All through this priest who would be of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi. You see, the Old Testament way didn't work. And Jesus, in essence, through all of these things that He did while He was on this earth, just drove that point home one time after another. Now do you know why he said, I am the light of the world? He didn't say, well, go look at the giant menorah over there in the temple because it's kind of like the guy who's going to... No, I am it. I'm here. You remember what else he said? I am the bread of life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, I am all these things. And he said all those things in the sight of Jewish hearers. And the reason he did is he said, that old order order of Levi, the Aaronic priesthood, it's done. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to have the priesthood who never ends, it's in me. 
the goal of both the priesthood of Aaron and the Mosaic law were to bring men to God, but it only really happened, in essence, the best it got was one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So it was really not ever um, fully what, what we would call uh, a reconciliation of man to God. It was simply a putting away to be dealt with at a later time. It, it kind of reduced, if you will, the amount of debris that was on the table that God was dealing with at a time. The Old Covenant sacrifices merely covered over sin. They couldn't remove it. The sin still remained. And it's a very important difference for us to realize what happens with this new priesthood. The old priesthood simply put it away. You can look at it this way. The old priesthood, the old Jewish law, the old Jewish religion, if you will, took everything that was ever done and stuck it inside of a suitcase. It was like a trillion billion IOUs. Okay, well, on this day I did this, and I, you know, I stole on this day, and I lied on this day, and they were all folded up, and the priest said, okay, well, you don't have to deal with that one right now. We'll put it in the suitcase. We'll deal with it later. Jesus took the whole suitcase and dumped it into the ocean, never more to be seen. But until then, they were all still there. And if God had ever judged mankind before the coming of the Messiah... Everything that was in there would have counted. It would have all been on your own account because they were not paid for yet. They were simply put away. They were waiting for the Melchizedek priesthood to be alive and and working. And this, of course, was Jesus. The New Covenant gives us this incredible understanding and the fullness of forgiveness. That's the reason that I chose to continue in the book of Philemon. And that's why we're looking at forgiveness for the next few weeks. Because that's what we gained. And that's what they didn't have under the Old Testament. They never had full forgiveness. They had temporal forgiveness. They had a putting away of the sin. It's kind of like when your parents say, yeah, I forgive you, and you lose a couple of privileges. But it was never erased. It's still there. It's still hanging over your head. Jeremiah very clearly predicted what Jesus would do as well. Jeremiah chapter 31, if you want to turn there. And oddly enough, this passage is actually quoted in its entirety in chapter 8. It is the longest Old Testament quotation in a New Testament book found in the entire New Testament. And it's interesting it happens to be this one. It's also quoted partially in chapter 10 in verses 16 and 17. Verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and, guess who, the house of Judah. Doesn't say the house of Levi. Doesn't say the Aaronic priesthood. Doesn't say through Moses or Elijah. Says through Judah. Now, to the Jews, they're going, I don't, you know, I don't know about this whole thing. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Not like that one. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Where was their law? The law was not within them. The law, in essence, as far as they knew, sat inside of the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies. That's what they knew where the law was. The law was there. The real Ten Commandments was what was inside that silly thing. I'll put it in their hearts. And, of course, I will write on it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and say, This man is brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, that is a very different covenant, and that's not the one that's in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah, writing almost 600 years B.C., wrote those words. That new covenant would be the covenant of the heart. It would be placed there internally, and God would dwell with them internally, and the law would be written on their hearts internally. No doubt they were troubled upon hearing that. The Levitical priesthood, if it could have brought perfection, it would have brought access to God, it would have brought salvation. If that was possible, why would God have provided another priesthood? Why would Melchizedek come to Abraham on the plains of Shinar? And the answer is, he wouldn't have needed to if the priesthood could have done the full job, but it couldn't. So they no longer needed a picture of salvation because they really had the Savior. They no longer needed the Old Testament law because they really had the fulfillment of the law. And that's why Jesus said exactly what he said. Not one, not one tittle have I come to remove from the law, but to fulfill it. And the reason he said that is he said all of the things of the law that told about God's character and God's nature, he said, I am all of those things. I fulfilled all of them. He said, in, in this is the filling of the law, fulfilling of the law and the prophets. What did he say? If you love your neighbor. You know why he said that? Because God is love. So if you love God the way God wants you to love God, which you can do through Christ Jesus, you cannot do through the law, then the law is in essence fulfilled. So what Jesus did was brought a new way to take all of those things that the Jews stumbled over, all of those things that all of that intense religion brought to them every day, you know, okay, well, I don't have my grain offering, and I don't have my wave offering, and man, I'm short on my my grain offering today, and so, you know, you had to think through all these things, and man, what did I miss? And invariably, no one, not the high priest could keep track of all of it. Like I said, read the book, in essence, the book of Leviticus, It'll, that'll do it by itself. Just read it and go, can you imagine trying to keep all those things straight in your head, knowing this, that nobody had a copy of it? There, you know, It wasn't like everybody, well, I'm going to go down to the local bookstore and I'm going to pick up an Old Testament. It didn't happen. If there was one and it existed, possibly they had a scroll or two of the Old Testament. Normally the scroll of Isaiah was the most common one found in every synagogue. But they sure didn't have a scroll of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers and they're thumbing through it. Let me give you a little condensed version of it. Just of the qualifications of the high priest, there are zero, count them zero, zero characteristics that have anything to do with godliness for the high priest. Did you know that? Not one in the Old Testament. But he couldn't have any blemishes. He could not walk with a limp. There were all kinds of physical characteristics of the high priest. He had to meet those things. He could never have spilt the blood of a heifer. I mean, there's just all these things that the high priest had to do. I mean, what if he didn't do it? We have an example of some of the guys in the Bible who didn't do it. They died. 
It was kind of a trial and error thing. How'd you like to get to heaven's door? Well, sorry, you kind of missed uh, point .417b, subparagraph H. You missed that one. Aren't you glad that you're saved by grace and through faith? Because if it was the Old Testament way, we're all dead. Over. It's history. What the old economy of God couldn't do, Christ did. What the old priesthood had in place was merely a picture of God's ultimate plan to bring the one who would be the bringer of peace. That's why Isaiah says what it says. He is the Prince of Peace. He's El Gabor. He's the Mighty One. This one person would be the Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. Oops, that's another characteristic of Melchizedek. That's another guy who's not from the line of Aaron. That's one of the guys who's going to be greater than Aaron's priesthood, but he's going to be eternal. It's exactly what Isaiah said he would be. You start to compile all this evidence, and guess what you come up with? There's only one guy it could be, and that one guy had to be born before A.D. 6, when the law was taken away from the Jewish people, and they had no more rule over themselves, and to this day they still do not. So the lawgiver, the one who would be the bringer of peace, had to come before A.D. 6. That's a pretty narrow window. So from when the prophecy of the, the, the God who would come, who would be the lawgiver, who would bring peace, there was a thousand-year span of history that had to produce the Messiah. Otherwise, there isn't one. Good news is he did come. His name is Jesus. Notice here in verse 12, it says, For the priesthood is changed of necessity. There takes place a change of the law also. The word change or change there uh, is metatheomai. And metatheomai is to take one thing and replace another thing with it. It's not to set them side by side. It is not comparison. It is a complete abrogation. In other words, this one no longer exists, and this one stands in its place. So what's being said here is by necessity, if the priesthood changed, it got replaced by the Melchizedek priesthood, then the law also changed. Does that mean that God's law changed? And the obvious answer to that is no. God's law can't change because it's the character and nature of God. But the application of it can, and that's because of the priesthood. You see, the old priesthood instituted the law in detail, all of its little quirks and quips. The law still stands, but it's now instituted by grace. The law is still there. God is still holy. God still says to us, do not murder. God still says, do not covet your neighbor or his goods. The law says, do not commit adultery. The law still says those things. The difference is, is you're no longer under the law, but under grace. And so the administration of the law has been changed so that it is now administered by the new priesthood, which is the priesthood after Melchizedek, which is Jesus, which is grace. So when people say, well, does the law count? Sure it does. But the way it's administered is now by grace and through faith. And it's no longer the minutia of the law. That's why Paul could say to the Galatian church, you're no longer under the law. You're not weighted down by all those requirements. 
That all was fulfilled at the coming of the Messiah. And when he came, you're now set free to live your life in the grace of God. And the produce of living your life in the grace of God is that you're going to become like him. And you're still going to want to be holy. And you're still going to have a desire for the things of God. The difference is when you fail, you're not running to the high priest to go sacrifice something on the brazen altar. You're not waiting for a whole year to have your sins expunged. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us. It's instantaneous. Why? Because the veil's torn. Because you can now go in. Because what the Old Testament did to tell you to stay out, because that's what the curtain did. That's what the veil did. You got to the veil and you went, keep out, says God. When it was torn in half, it was, come in, says the Lord. Enter in to my kingdom of rest, is, is the cry now from the heart of God. In a certain way, the law and the penalty of it has been diminished, but it's because of the administration of the law. It's not because the law itself has changed. Adultery, stealing, lying, coveting, those are all wrong. They're still wrong. It's also interesting to me, and if you want to ever look this up, in Exodus chapter 31, there's a few verses there, verses 13 to 17, and it gives you a picture of why Jesus never repeated the, the law of the Sabbath in the New Testament. Because it was very clear that the, the Sabbath was established for the Jewish people and them alone. It was between them and God. And it was they that were to keep the actual Sabbath. In other words, the Saturday Sabbath. For it was God's day, and it was a sign unto the Jewish people, the book of Exodus clearly declares, and that was the reason that Jesus, he repeated every one of the Ten Commandments except the Sabbath. That's why we don't keep the Sabbath. That's why it doesn't matter what day you worship on. That's why the early church met on Sunday, the first day of the week, and it didn't matter because exactly as the old, high te- the old high priest and all the priesthood was done away with, so was the Sabbath requirement because that was under the old law. And now it's being administered by grace, so we're free to worship God whenever we want. We didn't need, the, in essence, all of the religious endeavor to, to come to God. We no longer needed a temple, so to speak. That's why when people say, well, you know, Calvary chapels are in like old grocery stores, and this one's an old bar. This is a bar you're sitting in. The bar was right here. It's now officially closed. Can you imagine somebody under the Old Testament law? Oh, where's the, where's the altar of sacrifice? Where's the brazen altar? Where's the bronze laver? Where's the big white fence that goes all the way around the whole compound, signifying the holiness of the Lord? And where's the rainbow-colored gate so everybody can come in? Where's all that stuff? They couldn't worship God without it. It was an impossibility. It was confined to that one space. It was the only place where God's presence actually existed. But now God dwells in you. Hallelujah. You see, that Melchizedek priesthood is very important. Because it changed the way everything functions in this world. As we relate to God and as we draw near to Him. Interesting that this was actually the issue that, that Paul wrote the letter to the church at Galatia. And it says there, it's actually in chapter 3 and it's also in chapter 5. But it says there in chapter 3, it says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? 
do you really want to go back to the Old Testament sacrifices and all that? Do you want to have to go out and, you know, buy turtle doves every time you enter into the courtyard? Do you really want to go have to get a goat and, you know, kill a sheep once a year on the day of it? Do you really want to go back to that? And it closed out in chapter 5 and says, Now you've come to know God, or rather have been known by God. How is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again too? He said, why would you want to go back to religion when you have a relationship? Why would you want to turn to the the Old Testament ways when the New Covenant is so much better because Jesus is so much better than Aaron? Because what you now have privately in your heart is greater than any temple that's ever been set on any hill. You now, you now are the temples of God. You now have, instead of going to the tabernacle in the wilderness or going to the temple in Jerusalem and looking and seeing a pillar of fire or a cloud, you now have the very presence of God in you. Why would you want to go back to that? Why would you not want the presence of God with you every moment of every day by grace? That's the difference between the old way and the new way. It's also interesting to me that on the Mount of Transfiguration, remember Peter was was so awestruck when he saw Moses and Elijah and, and they talked with Jesus and he blurts out, he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Do you remember that Jesus said actually nothing to that? He didn't even respond to it. He goes on there, and that's found in Mark chapter 9, by the way. And he says, and then a cloud formed overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Jesus said nothing. Zip, nada. He's there with Moses and Elijah. They're talking. Jesus says nothing, but guess what God the Father does? This is my beloved son. Hear him. Forget about Moses. Forget about Elijah. The old ways passed. That was Aaron. That was the priesthood of the Levites. That was the Old Testament way. The new covenants come. It's the order after Melchizedek. It's the eternal one, the one who will never die. Hear him. Basically, he was saying, time of Moses and Elijah is over. It's past. It's history. You know, it's interesting because this all ties in so beautifully to what God had already shown the people. You remember at the, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the people were literally fenced out of God's presence. I mean, there was a, there was a physical barrier between them and the tabernacle. It said, stay out, go away, you can't come in here, I, I don't want to see you until you're right. It's that, it's that Old Testament religion. It's what most of you thought before you came to Jesus, isn't it? Well, I can't go to church. I mean, I was just out drinking with my buddies last night. God doesn't want me because I'm in a, a bad relationship with somebody I'm not supposed to be in right now. I, I can't I can't get near anywhere near God because, you know, I was just over in a fight. So I beat the tar out of somebody. God doesn't want anything to do with me. You, you see, at that time, that was true. You had to deal with the sin first. You had to deal with the sin first. And God says, now, if you'll believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved and I'll deal with your sin. I'll make myself a sacrifice for you. 
You had to sacrifice for your own sin in the Old Testament. You had to go find yourself a goat or a sheep or a cow or, you know, some aardvark or something. It's an aardvark sacrifice. It's very little known. It's right next to honey badgers. Honey badger. They're mean. Don't mess with a honey badger. It's the only animal on earth that can be bit by a pit viper and it survives. You see, Jesus came from Judah. And to the Jews, they're going, wow, that can't work. And God's saying, that's exactly right, it can't work. Because the Old Testament way never worked. It doesn't work, it didn't work, it still doesn't work. You need a different way. And so the new priesthood becomes the only priesthood, if you will. That's why verse 17 says, and this is clearer still, that if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, because that's the you just simply had to be of the tribe of Levi and had to be able to prove it, and you had to meet all the physical requirements. Is that the dumbest thing you ever heard of? So in order to be a Levitical priest, you didn't have to be holy. You didn't have to be righteous. You just had to have the right last name. And you had to be a certain height, and you couldn't have any blemishes. In essence, it was almost a beauty pageant. It's like, oh, he looks really nice, and he's from the tribe of Levi. We'll make him the priest. That doesn't save anybody. That's why religion doesn't save anybody. You see, religion's exactly like that. It has an external requirement. You gotta join this church. You gotta dress this way. You gotta be this type of person. You gotta say these things. You gotta know these words. You gotta do this and do that. That's exactly what the Levitical priesthood represented. It was religion. Can you imagine what a mess it was for the Jewish people when Jesus comes on the scene saying, I am the Lamb of God? John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They're like, are you kidding me? We thought that happened in the temple. Not hardly. Because the temple was never fully holy. The word there that's in verse 15 that says another. There are two words in the Greek language for another. The first one is alos. And alos means one, an additional one in essence of the same kind. The other word is heteros, which means one of another or different kind. Let me explain that to you. Uh, we have a Dodge Durango. That is an SUV. So if I switch my Dodge Durango for the little caliber, that would be one of the same kind. They're both SUVs. But if I trade my Durango in for a Prius, that is one of another kind. Also a worthless kind. <laughs> They're still cars, but a completely different kind, okay? Jesus is another kind. He's completely different. He's not one of the same class. He is one of a new class, a completely different class. He is not the same in any way, shape, or form. He is merely a replacement as the high priest. In other words, he's still a car. But he's not like the SUV. He sure isn't like a Prius. He's a completely different kind. There is one who is of another kind. 
Christ would do what no other priest could ever do. He, he was completely different. You, you see, it, what it says here is he, he arises in essence by himself. He, he is the one who does himself what no one else could do. That's why he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He could say that because he was another kind. No high priest could do that. The high priest had to offer first sacrifices for himself and then for the person to even be able to approach God. But Jesus says, out of hand, put it on my account. Forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue. But I know what I'm doing. I'm saying it's finished. It's done. It's over. I'm ushering in grace. He didn't do that on physical requirements. He did that on heart. He did that on who he is alone. That's why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why it is that way. Because he's one of one. He isn't one of many. He is the only one who's like him. As we close tonight, I want to just really illustrate this for you. I have several other things that I was thinking of. But in essence, if you don't have the security of God... You really don't ever have an idea of how blessed you actually are. And I'll give you an illustration of this. Uh, and it's a, it's a story that I have told before, but I've elucidated it a little bit here and made it a little bit larger. A young woman who prior to marriage runs up a ton of bills. And I mean a ton of bills. She's just up to her debt. She has 47 credit cards in her wallet, and they're all maxed out 10000 bucks a piece. That's half a million dollars for those of you who want to do some quick math. She works at Burger King. Her chances of paying that off are less than zero because the interest on it is growing. In other words, she is more in debt every day she's alive. Amen? You get the picture? Just by being alive, her condition gets worse every day. But along comes a young man who falls deeply in love with her and says to her, you know what? Don't worry about your debt. When we get married, I'll take care of it. But she doesn't know that he can do it. She doesn't really trust him yet. So she says, well, I'm not sure. I don't know if I really want to marry you. And so she hem-haws around for a while, and the interest grows. It's now $580,000 because it's two weeks later, and it was 27% interest. And it's growing like wildfire. I mean, she's just getting deeper and deeper, and every day she's alive, she's worse off. And the young man comes back, and he says, No, really, I will pay off every last one of your credit cards. I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Just like, well, you know, it's so much money. I don't know if you can really. He says, just trust me. I love you. And she finally says, yes. She says, you know what? I trust you. I, I don't, I don't know everything, but I trust you. And the day of the wedding, they're they're standing on the altar. And he presents a stack of papers to her proving that absolutely every one of those credit cards is completely paid off. It's done. They're paid off. But not only that, he said, here's your checkbook, and here's your ATM card, 
And oh, by the way, you're wealthy beyond your fat, most wild imaginations. Everything you ever dreamed of, you now have. Not only did I take care of your debt, but you now have a life that's beyond your fathoming. That's the difference between the old and the new. That's the difference between what the law could do in and of itself and what grace does. You see, she didn't have any reason to believe that he could do it initially. But he made the promise. He said, here's the ring. If you'll trust, if you'll believe, and if you'll marry me, I'll take care of the debt. That's the priesthood of Melchizedek that Jesus fulfilled. You see, the old way, the debts still were there. They were put away for a while, didn't have to make any interest payments or anything. But when Jesus came, he said, the debts are paid, and oh, by the way, you're fabulously wealthy. All the riches and glory in Christ Jesus are yours because you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Uh, Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you that that's true. Uh, Lord, we were in debt beyond anything that we could possibly imagine. So much so that had we died in that debt, we would have perished eternally. But because you are greater than any of the Old Testament high priests, because you're greater than the law, because your love is immeasurable, you made us your bride, and you've prepared a place for us and your word declares that you have gone to prepare that place and and that you actually have told us that you want us to be where you are and so god we know that we can trust that and when we get there we're going to receive the riches of glory lord a crown that's not perishable but imperishable a mansion not made with hands but one that's in the heavens And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you gave the Old Testament saints. And what a shock it must have been on Abraham's face and on Isaac's face and Moses and David as they realized that that babe in a major was also the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Alpha, the Omega, and the Great I Am. We thank you, Lord, for that precious, precious gift of eternal life. We bless you. We thank you. We exalt your name, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. That would be how superior Jesus is. A whole bunch better than any religion. Amen?